Are you optimistic about the future? I'm super optimistic, primarily because not being is just not a very good life. And so I just choose to be. If things are going to go to shit, then you might as well like go down swinging, right? And kind of swing for the fences and try to build the best future possible. Even like a hundred million people using positive sum thinking and rowing in the same direction almost always leads to phenomenal outcomes. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. I am your host, Lex Kefauver. Companies are making net zero pledges like they are popping Skittles. Left and right, you see companies with splashy marketing campaigns saying that they are going to go to zero carbon net emissions by 2025 or 2030 or 2050. But the question is actually how they're going to make good on that. And that is a whole bit more complicated. There's really just two ways. One is to reduce the amount of carbon that they create by changing how they conduct business. For instance, they can switch to renewable energies to power their factories, electrify their fleet of vehicles, or swap out raw materials which take a lot of carbon to produce, like plastic made from petrochemicals, to recycled materials or substitutes which are less carbon intensive. Now all of that sounds great, but there's more than a few things standing in the way of companies doing this, not the least of which is the cost of changing your supply chain or the cost of buying new vehicles. And today, unfortunately, most truly sustainable substitutes for raw materials are still a little bit more expensive than their carbon-intensive counterparts. So how are companies going to fill that gap between the amount of carbon that they're still emitting and the amount that they need to reduce in order to get to net zero. And the answer to that, in large part, is by buying carbon offsets. So what is a carbon offset? A carbon offset is basically swapping out the carbon that you use to make things for carbon that's either captured from the atmosphere and put into a carbon sink, or paying someone to not do things that would put more carbon in the atmosphere. So there's two types. Those are called removals and avoidances. You're either removing carbon from the atmosphere or you're avoiding putting more carbon into it. Now, a few years ago, this was a relatively small market. Bloomberg pegged it at around $300 million in 2018. But when those barn doors opened for the net neutral pledges and companies started pouring through those wide open barn doors, the market for carbon offsets exploded. Today, Bloomberg estimates that by 2030, the carbon offset market will be worth north of $100 billion. So from $300 million to $100 billion in 12 years. And that brings us to today's guest, the CEO of Patch Technologies, Brennan Spellacy. Patch is building software that makes it easier for companies to both identify how much carbon they're producing and put in plans to reduce that carbon internally, and then also buy offsets that they need in order to reach those carbon zero goals. And it turns out that wave of carbon offsets has taken Patch for one heck of a ride. They were founded in 2020, and since they've raised over $80 million in venture capital money, most recently a $55 million round B announced in September, headlined by none other than Andreessen Horowitz. But with hypergrowth also comes the opportunity for massive fails. I asked Brennan about the moral hazard inherent in carbon offsets, how to adjudicate good offsets from bad ones, what role crypto plays in all of this, and whether, as someone at the bleeding edge of climate entrepreneurship with a whole bag of money to play with, he's optimistic about our future. Here's what Brennan had to say. 
Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. Today we have the CEO of Patch, Brennan Spellacy. I had to write that down phonetically because that's just the flavor of dyslexic that I am. And I appreciate you for, for walking me through that. Brennan, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having me, Lex. Appreciate to be here. And don't worry, I've heard Spalachi, Spalacy, I've, I've heard all of it. So you crushed it. Not, a, not an unreasonable ask by any means. My my last name is Keefobber and people are like, how in the world do I say that? I'm like, it's a Keefob, like you get into a door. So I hear you, like butchering of last names, old hat. Um, okay, so Patch, there's, there's so much to talk about here because you guys are really at the forefront of an evolving landscape, which writ large, carbon markets in general, but this idea of we here on earth have limited resources. How do we value those resources such that we can make sure that we continue to survive here on the planet? And there's a lot of news and a lot of, um, a little bit of, I don't know if you would call it controversy, but definitely like different takes on what it means to offset a piece of carbon. Um, a ton of carbon. So let's just start there. Can you give us a sense of what exactly it is that Patch does and how you guys fit into this overall landscape of carbon offsetting? Yeah, absolutely. So at Patch, we describe ourselves as a platform for scaling unified climate action. And what that means, that unified is kind of the, the operative word because there are a huge number of parties involved in carbon markets. There are the buyers and sellers. So, so those are typically the on average corporates and then carbon credit project developers themselves. But there are also project verifiers, regulators, the organizations that make the climate claims themselves, like SBTI, the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And what Patch does is we actually integrate with all of these different systems and bring it into one place. And what that enables you as a buyer to actually do from the buyer's perspective is to understand what am I actually buying? Because we're elevating the level of transparency within the market. And how does it apply to my particular sustainability strategy or journey? Because historically, carbon markets have been a little bit less transparent. And so people, the people making the commitments, structuring the commitments and doing the verification and project development have historically not talked to each other as much as they have. And Patch aims to fix that problem. Okay, so let's break that down into like real world examples because I always find that useful. Here's one egregious one that I heard. There was a hydroelectric dam developed in China 15 years ago that was using water to make energy. And they applied for carbon credits to say that we want to be able to take the energy that we make through this hydroelectric dam and sell it back into the market and profit from it as though you were offsetting a piece of carbon. Even though that dam already would have been built and it's already running and there's really nothing that's happening there that is going to change the course of the future. But they're saying we get to want we we do something better than burning fossil fuels. So we're going to take this value of this ton of carbon and we're going to profit from it. And on the one hand, that is something that isn't actually moving the needle for us not dying here on Earth. But a company like an airline can take that carbon credit and sell it back to a consumer that's taking a flight and everyone from that perspective feels like they've done something good. And on the other hand, you have incredibly well-resourced and monitored projects that are really doing work to help communities in terms of the livelihood of the people that are fostering sort of mango groves or, or like, you know, carbon sinks and like really doing the hard work to actually not only build things that wouldn't be there otherwise, but improve the communities of the people engaged. Huge delta in between these things. But me as a consumer, 
I book a flight, I click the button that says, yes, I want to offset this flight. And I have no idea how these, what it is that I'm actually doing. When you say you help the customer understand that, are you helping me, the customer, the end user that's actually buying this as a consumer? Or is it one level up, which is the corporation that's buying that carpet from someone else or one level even up above that? Where, where do you, what is the customer in that world? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And so you've actually already identified one of the key reasons Patch has taken this strategy of elevating all this information. Because historically, carbon has a, people have attempted to commodify carbon, where they treat every ton as the same. And we at Patch believe that is not, that is not true. The, there's a huge delta between and of what is called an avoidance credit, where you're trying to avoid emissions from being emitted. That's what you're describing in the hydroelectricity example, to something like a removal credit which is about that kind of uh, mangrove planting example where you're actually drawing down carbon. And there's a huge amount of variability in between. And what's been really interesting is as time has gone by, as carbon markets have evolved, even in just their kind of short life of two decades, the protocols have changed with them and the underlying economic circumstances in which they sit have also changed. And what I mean by that is for that particular example you're describing, I'm not sure what the underlying economics were, but there are situations where building renewable electricity two decades ago was not financially viable, but it is today. And so that is, has been where some of the renewable energy credits specifically have kind of fallen into a bit of a murkier territory because what wasn't good business two decades ago in renewable energy is today. And the role that Patch plays is we actually elevate all this information to the corporate buyer. So in this case, that would be the airline or maybe the software system that the airline is using to run their business. And what they can do is they can get access to all this information and understand the, how long the project has been operating for, the life cycle, the underlying protocol, the geography, all these kind of different pieces of metadata that prove that carbon is not a commodity and either surface it to their sustainability team or if they so choose to surface it to their end consumer. In many cases, people don't do that because it's a little bit too much information for the average person booking a flight to understand. But technically, you could do it using the patch platform. So it really depends on what your product strategy is. Do you want to make that decision internally or do you want to put that decision in the hands of the end consumer? And so you guys are the ones that are, you're not doing the vetting of the projects, but you are consolidating those projects and then providing a marketplace for the companies to go either bid on or just purchase those credits themselves and then take them and market them back to their end consumers. So what we do is we evaluate the projects in a sense where we make sure all the information that they're submitting to us is true, but we are mm -hmm. not doing the carbon baselining. And in right. this case, you're talking about this idea of additionality. We're not evaluating the additionality primarily because of the problem with incentives that would arise as a market intermediary associated with uh, an almost like an auditor. So like we need to make sure these separate, these two kind of parties are separate entities. How do you guys make money? We make money in two ways. We make money off of throughput. So if you basically, what's essentially like a take rate, very similar to uh, how Airbnb makes money. So you book travel, you know, if you book a hundred dollars a night, it's like takes 10% of that. Um, and then the other model is we have what's called a platform fee, which is looks like a monthly um, subscriptions to access the patch platform. And that's typically scaling with how much stress you're putting on the patch platform. So the amount of stress that like a large bank would put on versus a small startup is going to be very different. So right. the kind of requirement to pay is different as well. Right. So you're an enterprise model that has a variable pricing depending on how much, how many units of carbon that you guys offset. That's correct.
Thank you. I, it, took, it takes me a long time to figure out how things actually make money. You know, it's like, it's, and often when you're talking about climate, you got to drill down on that to feel like who, who are the buyers and sellers in these things? Because yeah. like you said, you identified incentives as being something that's super tricky about this. Because on one hand, like you guys as a business, you want this to maximize. You want to be able to sell as many credits as there are possible. But we as a, as a world, let me, let me take this back. There's more demand right now for carbon credits than potentially there are for really good validated projects that are offsetting credits. And also not enough people to go in and do that work of measuring these things, you know? So like John Oliver just came out with a segment which has been much po popularized about a guy who owns uh, a massive rich person's villa estate up, you know, in, in New York, or it's, it's a beautiful bucolic estate. And he's selling carbon credits on that saying that I'm gonna sell these so that I don't cut down the trees. And everyone's like, you're not gonna cut down the trees on your estate, but you're still making money from this, which is again, totally cherry picking an anecdotal thing. But I think it draws this moral hazard question into play, which is that like, you can want to do the right thing, which is to buy an offset as a company. And you as a marketplace are incentivized in bringing these buyers and sellers together. But if there's more demand for that, then you're left with one of two options. Either you restrict your growth or you find ways to satisfy that demand by loosening some kind of control structure, bringing more things into the market that you could sell. So how do you, how do you think about that as the necessity for us to continue to offset carbon continues to become more and more important? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I think what makes sense is to really start with kind of the requirements we need to achieve as a species in order to hit our climate goals. So the IPCC has made it very, very clear that there is no path to a degree and a half or two degrees of cooling without five to 10 gigatons of carbon removal per year by 2050. So that implies a thousand X growth from what we're doing today in the next two decades. Right. Absolutely immense growth. Um, and so if we want to hit our climate goals, like there's a certain amount of carbon compensation has to take place. So really the question actually is, is not around um, does patch need to inhibit its growth or not? Because patch, if we hit our climate goals, will hit its growth desires. Like that is like if patch is able to contribute even just 5% to that mission, we're gonna be a very, very successful business. The thing that's important is how do you make sure the Except those incentives are aligned with the right number of parties. And historically, carbon markets have been too small. So it hasn't attracted the attention of having the right balance of powers in place. And we're now beginning to see that dynamic shift. So what that means, historically, there have been buyers, uh, credit certifiers, and project developers. Those have been the main three entities. But that is actually not enough infrastructure to have a valid market. There needs to be market makers like Patch that act kind of uh, deal with the inefficiencies of supply and demand matching. We actually have not seen that dynamic that you're describing where there's more demand for one type of credit versus the other. We've actually seen a huge amount of demand for these kind of more expensive $100, $150 per, dot, dollar per ton types of credits, which are kind of more permanent geologically stored forms of carbon removal. So that's not consistent with our experience. But you also need things like credit raters. So even if you create a credit, how do you understand the stratification of efficacy within each credit. And you also need 
regulators, where you're actually saying you can make this claim or you cannot make this claim if you buy this particular type of credit. And we're just beginning to see that now where the SEC is forcing the disclosure of purchase of carbon credits of regulated organizations, or it's currently act on, under active review, as well as the FTC beginning to release guidance on what kind of claims you can make for carbon neutral products. And so now that carbon markets have grown significantly in the last two, three, four years, it's beginning to get the attention of all these other relevant market participants because it's beginning to get to a scale that's meaningful and that requires that level of balance. And so that's something that we do at Patch all the time, which is almost like a little bit antithetical, where we're one of the few technology companies I know of, with maybe the exception of some crypto organizations that are almost begging for more regulation because mm -hmm. it makes it actually easier for us to implement our software, make product decisions if we know what the rules of the US, of the SEC, of the FTC, of the Canadian federal government, whatever it might be, actually are. Because then we can actually implement them and make sure people don't break those rules. We're gonna put a pin in crypto. I know that was like, a those will lead you, you trying to lead me down a path too early here, Brennan, but we'll get back to that. So I think that's really interesting because if it is unregulated, there's more opportunity for bad actors in the space. And that actually could potentially be, your moat could be sussing out those bad actors and providing good credits if there is a penalty to these big companies that want to buy these things, assuming that the SECST through the FTC comes after them for something. So so how do you see that cost banning out? Like if the benefit to them is to send to their customers, we're doing good things, feel good about buying our stuff. Right now, is there any cost for bad actors in the space? And if not, how do you see this regulation enacting a cost that would actually change the way that companies do business? Yeah, so we've actually seen, I think, one or two, and, and I can't remember the exact name, but I believe there was actually one or two oat milk companies in Sweden, if I remember correctly, that have actually been sued um, by misrepresenting the claims that they've been making about their products, specifically related to this, related to either, I think, plastic use or carbon use within their actual products and services. So right now, it's actually bespoke where mm -hmm. it's getting treated as false advertising, maybe misleading investors. And that's kind of why the SEC has begun to get involved because you have these large corporates making net zero claims by 2030, 2040s, 2050s to attract ESG dollars. But if there's exactly. no substance to that particular plan, then now that actually becomes like a securities and a, and a fraud problem. And so it's all, it's actually all quite dynamic where historically it's been very bespoke where maybe an advocacy group has, has had a, Axe to grind implies that there's no, um, it's not justified, but basically they'd had a bone to pick with a specific organization. But now they kind of, over the last, even just 12 months, we've seen kind of these federal organizations begin to come in. So I think that this cost is going to begin to, begin to go up quite significantly quickly in the short term. Right, because consumers by and large aren't going to have the time or invest in the sophistication to tell the difference. And no. so it's going to require either government action, well, probably government regulation and also some kind of costs. And if that's born through PR or lawsuits, class action suits, that's good, but there needs to be the infrastructure to enact those. Where do you see, so you mentioned something before that all carbon product projects are different and the efficacy of those product projects can be different. When you look at carbon markets right now, the value, like the actual dollar value of things changing is largely, if not entirely about the specific value of the carbon that is being offset or avoided and the companies that are buying that. Whereas in other traditional markets, commodities markets, 90% of the actual trading happens around the idea of the futures of those markets. So with soybeans, you know, you're trading very little soybeans, but you're trading a lot of money on what do you think soybeans are going to go up and down? And what that means is that there's more money in that space to develop projects around soybeans. 
um, sort of, but we're going to go with that. How do you see that in terms of the price of carbon? Because it wildly fluctuates from project to project, and it's hard to commoditize so that you could actually make a bet on whether that price is going to go up or down in the future. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, I mean, you know, financial markets, I think, are probably on the scale of, I imagine, trillions of dollars. And a lot of that includes that kind of level of option and derivative type trading. I think this is like a lot less interesting from kind of our perspective. At the end of the day, we're incredibly focused on getting dollars to effective climate action and making it easy for corporates to get that done. I think I understand your point on like the more capital activity, maybe the more capital inflows that will result. But again, bringing it back to that kind of initial goal, 10 gigatons of carbon per year at $50 a ton is $500 billion of spend a year. That's already an immense market just on kind of what might be considered the non-derivative or primary market of carbon. And so for us, we're really focused on, well, how do you get to that 500 billion? It's going to be through surfacing the nuance of all these different projects. It's going to be through structuring new financing mechanisms for the projects that are doing good work to actually get up to speed. It's going to be all about mitigating kind of any sort of like market risk associated with new projects that need to come online. This is something that we're beginning to see now that I think is incredibly important to get right, that we can learn a lot from solar development from. So the cost of capital of renewable energy development specifically for solar has dropped precipitously over the last two decades. And that's just because it's such a predictable business, right? Mm -hmm. You bring on a photovoltaic grid, you sell us the utility, and that thing is almost like an annuity. It spits out cash every month, and it's very easy to service the specific type of financing you've got from a bank or someone else. We need to get carbon to that same world, where if you have all this market demand for these net zero commitments, how do you put together a structure that enables carbon projects that, again, signal to banks, no, I have this market demand, please make give me capital to finance this net new additional project that able, enables me to have some sort of positive climate action. So I think there's a little bit more financial engineering on the finance on the financing of project development side that I find a little bit more interesting versus the kind of secondary and tertiary markets we build on top of trading itself. How do you feel about programs like cap and trade or enacting some sort of narrow carbon tax in specific instances? Yeah, so I think if you can get it, I think I, there's two thoughts. So there's the idea like, is it even politically possible in your geography, right? So Canada got this done a couple of years ago and it was an effort. Like it was a massive, massive effort, but it's also phenomenally where it was going to done specifically because I think 25% of their economy comes from some sort of oil and gas extraction. So the fact that they were able to get some sort of carbon tax across the finish line, that is going to ratchet up to 2030 to a very high price. I don't remember the exact number, so I won't state it. It's been like, I find really impressive. I think the big question is if you're actually able to get to the points where you get that tax, how do you deploy those funds into some sort of climate mitigation or other climate action? And then, and then that's why I'm a little bit less excited about cap and trade mechanisms and compliance markets in general is not actually because they're not effective. I mean, it's at, at least today, they're not as effective as they could be. Because once you get that money, can the government efficiently deploy that in some sort of climate, um, either either decarbonization or carbon removal effort more efficiently than if that money went directly to another business? And I think that's kind of the big question that I have, that I haven't seen being, been addressed or been proven out yet. And so that's kind of the big question for me. With cap and trade as well, at least in California, they don't want to keep or they don't want carbons to get too expensive. So they'll actually issue new permits or, or credits, actually. So they actually don't create like a fixed pot. So in a lot of cases like that, number of credits in circulation will creep up if things become too expensive or too 
financially burdensome for the for the regulated parties. And so, like, if you're going to do that, you might as well not do it at all and spend that effort on something else. So, those are some kind of rough, unstructured thoughts on capital in general. Nothing that gets you more excited than talking about legacy policy when it comes to potential <laughs> climate mitigation. Um, but switching gears to forward-looking things, uh, you're seeing a lot of confluence with people building Web3 stuff, whether that be tokens or um, things built on top of blockchain that want to do something good for the environment, right? That's sort of like no. directionally focused on like, let's not die here on earth and how can we have a positive impact? Now, <clears throat> there are, but there's no... Um, pun not intended. There's no centralized thought about like what that should be or how that should be enacted. Like so, from where you're sitting, what projects do you see that are exciting in that space that are using this giant influx of money well as it pertains to actually mitigating climate or mitigating carbon? Yeah, totally. So a lot of of these crypto times climate companies are trying to leverage the liquidity that comes with crypto markets to unlock some sort of new form of climate finance on average. That's, that's typically what they're trying to do. And it's primarily because, you know, you have a bunch of folks that are willing to give you a thousand dollars with the credits or token right. or tokens. I'll, I'll separate tokens like in credit for this conversation of tokens. Uh, they put that in a big pool of money and then they start tokenizing something else. So it might be a carbon credit and it might be a derivative on top of a carbon credit. In this case, it just feels a lot more like speculating, speculation in a lot of cases for me, which is why it gets me less excited. So companies like Dow, for example, they're essentially allowing the trade in exchange of like CDM credits, which are those kind of like hydroelectric credits from like 2007 and, and earlier. That for me, like the underlying thesis was, hey, we're gonna vacuum up all of the low cost volume to drive up the cost of carbon. But if there's no material staying power, which that's been the case with Klima, it's kind of more of a flash in the pan. Some things that are interesting are projects like Tucan, which Tucan, their whole concept is to build what's called bridging software, which is how do you bridge web two systems? So the traditional registry systems and so like software, software patch builds would be web two, to the web three world. And just how do you tokenize things? The reason I think this is exciting though, is less related to the specific climate and crypto intersection and more because it just allows for more interoperability. And that's something that we focus a lot on patch. And interoperability is basically the idea of how can other systems talk to one another, right? right. So patch, at patch, we're really good at talking to all the other web two systems, which is basically like 95, 99% of the software that's built today on the web is some sort of web two system. We have an HTTP server and they talk to each other and they use either a REST API or something else and we'll go super in the nitty gritty. But there's this new emerging classification of software called web three, which is typically all this decentralized software. We don't plan on building any sort of Web3 engineering team or software at Patch. So having a software like Tucan that allows us to dip our toes into the Web3 world at no huge cost to us is something that is exciting and something that is, is, is interesting. The real question is, is that thing on the other side of the bridge worth it and durable? I haven't seen proof of that yet today for the climate application specifically. There's... Uh small but growing movement towards this thing called like a, a carbon passport growing in Europe, where it's the idea of saying you're going to build something and it's going to be something large and complex. And you want to know how much energy it takes to build that thing called an apartment building. And so you can record the different amount of energies and materials usage at each stage so that in theory, you could go scan an apartment building and understand all of the energy that went into build that, all the materials that are in this, how those materials could be recycled, how like what their intrinsic value is, what have you. 
built on a system like blockchain where you could then have it be anyone could access it and it would be relatively secure. And that would help solve at least some aspect of accounting for these things. So like if I wanted to offset the cost of something, there's so much variability in assessing how much carbon it, it takes to, to do things, to make things, to build things, what have you. It depends who's counting it. Do you see any way to bridge that gap between the accounting for it, creating something like this carbon passport, and then the monetization of that offset or the way to take that and say, okay, we're going to pay to have that be offset or have that, you know, creating, creating some financial vehicle that will incentivize the reduction of the overall carbon toll of building that thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. So I haven't heard this exact carbon passport concept before, but it's really interesting. And I've seen a few other crypto and supply chain type companies come together. And this kind of really reminds me a little bit of that. Like how do you track this good or service yeah. along a particular value chain and collect data along the way? I think the thing though, that a lot of, and I worked on the supply chain team at Sonder, actually the company I started before. So I think this is something that sometimes can get lost, especially when you're really focused on a particular technology, is the idea that the thing that's difficult with most problems in the world is not that there's some problem within the software world. Like the reason software systems aren't open is because the builders of the software systems don't want them to be open, or they're not ready for them to be open. It's not that they're like, uh, incompatible to be open. And so as a result, this really comes like this idea of like open decentralized is really a matter of philosophy. How do you convince some organizations to be default open and, and get that information? But the truly difficult thing around supply chain specifically is the physical to digital mapping problem, which is something happened in the real world. And how do I get that data with a high degree of integrity and certainty into the digital world? It's not getting, get, whether you pipe it into Web2 or Web3, it doesn't really matter if it's garbage data coming in. I think that's the thing that's lost in a lot of situations like this, where if you've ever like built a building before or like received a container from uh, like in the port of LA or something like that, all these manifests are on paper. A lot of times like there is no manifest, there's information lost. And so the idea of getting a reliable accounting kind of framework for carbon built in a distributed ledger way is a really interesting thing, but the true hard problem that needs to be fixed before that's even usable is the idea of, well, how do I even collect that information in the first place? And there's this idea of if there's a decentralized model where you're using some sort of internet of things or, or kind of infield sensors to collect information, but then who's going to maintain those systems? And that essentially at the end of the day, not everyone can be accountable for everything, which is kind of where the decentralized piece falls apart with physical systems. Because if I'm contributing to a physical network and I have my one IoT sensor, what's to incentivize me to make sure my readings are right? Well, it might be some sort of token that may or may not have utility to it or value to it. But then how do people know or vet me to make sure the information I'm putting in is right? And so it's, it's a very, I think at scale, one could see how consensus and distributed ledgers could work. But the kind of like zero to one to then end story, like we've done the zero to one with a lot of crypto stuff, but the one to end seems super hairy and, and quite uncertain. And so when we talk about climate and crypto at Patch, the thing that I really talk about is I don't like having to have rely on two miracles for my company to work. And like one miracle is already making a market grow by 100x in a decade. That's already a miracle in itself. I don't also want to have to require a bunch of like banks and logistics companies are working with adopting a brand new technology that like the average 
Gen Z person can't even operate themselves. So for me, it's too many miracles for too important of a problem. So let's talk about that miracle then. You recently have some news that is validating of your miraculousness. Um, would you share with us this news? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So depending on when this comes out, we we announced our, our Series B a couple, maybe days or weeks ago, depending on depending on when this comes out. We're announcing it on September 13th. And, you know, we're really fortunate to bring on the folks from Energize, as well as our current kind of insider group of investors in CO2 and Andreessen Horowitz to lead a $55 million Series B. Um, and, you know, we're inching away towards that miracle, but there's a lot there's a lot more work to be done. But super, super grateful to have these great partners in our corner, especially going into what some are perceiving as economically uncertain times. I think we're there for the economically uncertain. I think we have been there for it's just it's all glitter if you think it's not economically uncertain at any given time. Over a long enough time period, uncertainty will indeed appear. Congratulations. That's huge. That's a that's a so massive, yeah, that's a massive validation and also gives you so much more opportunity to continue growing this. Take me back to before that. Uh you started this not long ago, 2020. You guys are like two years in. Yeah. What has it been like to go from an idea to a $55 million raise in the space of 24 months? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty surreal, truthfully. And I think, you know, Patch is really a great example of, uh, I think, why timing is so important when starting anything. And so, you know, I, the, the team at Patch has done like a lot of really phenomenal work and we've worked incredibly hard. But at the end of the day, if we started this company two years sooner, we probably, we certainly wouldn't be at the stage we were at today after two years. And we might not have even existed because we might have actually started and died too quickly between like 2018 and 2020, just because the market wasn't necessarily ready. And so I think something that is important with this is really understanding timing and the kind of effects it has on whether companies win, win or lose and succeed in the long run. That being said, a lot of the action has really just been in the last like nine 12 months. We just had all hands earlier today and we were reviewing kind of the headcount and kind of the volume processed on patch. And from April to December of 2020, we went from two to six people from in that basically the following year, we would go from six to I think 20. And now we're 60 people, not even completely through the year. And so yeah. like the velocity, which we're growing both on the customer side, as well as on the kind of headcount side has been really remarkable, quite back weighted and quite recent. And it really just shows kind of regardless of the economic uncertainty we're going to, corporates have made a commitment to actively participate here as well as capital allocators. And if you believe in a secular trend that's going to last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, like a lot of our investors do with respect to climate action, it doesn't really matter what's happening in the short term. One secular trend that seems unavoidable is that we will continue to imperil our future here on Earth as a species. And so being on the side of saying, I'm going to make that bet, unfortunately, is a miracle that's played out or an, whatever an anti-miracle would be, right? So that definitely is going to be a safe bet. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, well, but also humanity's also overcome that too. So like humanity's always pushing the boundary of how can we explore more, but then there's like a famine or some sort of disease. And then like, how can we like extend our length of life or like there's some food problem. And so, that like we're always like kind of going in and out of equilibrium, if you will. 
Well, I, I will kind of. I think that we have always come in and out of equilibrium when it comes to our own societal structures. So mm-hmm. you know, city civilizations have risen and fallen. I don't think we, and this is personally, but I don't think we've ever been in conflict with a species level of event, existential threat. But I'd be curious about your thoughts here. You are, are you optimistic about the future? I'm super optimistic, primarily because not being is just not a very good life. And so I just choose to be. If things are going to go to shit, uh, and I don't know if I'm about to swear on this podcast, but things are going to go to shit, <laughs> You're um, more than welcome. then you might as well like go down swinging, right? And kind of swing for the fences and try to build the best future possible. Otherwise, you can kind of just take a seat and kind of fall into a slew of despond. You know, I think for us, though, on the species level, I mean, so I would argue that what we faced in kind of some of the great wars, Spanish flu, even like the Cold War with kind of like nuclear proliferation, those are all species level threats that we're able to overcome. I think some might, or maybe not the same magnitude and scale that we're currently at today. Uh, But I'd also like to think that we as species are smarter and more, certainly more capable than we were five, six, 10 decades ago. So where do you think then the the source of this salvation will come if we get through this moment of of climate crisis uh in terms of technology politics humans ability to put aside their own self-interest or greed for a collective good like what makes you optimistic what makes me optimistic is basically whatever i've seen even like a slightly like not even a huge group of people when i say huge group of people i'm thinking a billion people like even like a hundred million people using positive sum thinking and rowing in the same direction almost always leads to phenomenal outcomes. And so for me, like, I actually think like that's the kind of bet you have to make in order to accomplish climate change. Like you actually don't necessarily need 7 billion people to do something because I actually don't think it's like tenable. Uh, What you really need to do is find who are the people who have the most leverage or organizations who have the most leverage and make sure they are aligned with where we're trying to go, in this case, combating climate change. And make sure we're just all rowing in the same direction and thinking positive sum. I actually think one of the biggest risks associated with the climate movement in general is this idea of trying to reallocate a particular pie. Um, and kind of this idea of zero sum thinking of, oh, you know, every dollar at the margin should be spent on one solution versus another solution. When in actuality, this is the kind of framework I'm always coming to mind with is, okay, we have a $10 billion pie here. How do we make it a $100 billion pie? How do we make it a $500 billion pie? This is a trillion dollar problem in climate change, right? You even have like one company addressing climate change in Tesla with electric vehicles being worth hundreds of billions of dollars. We, are, we need like 100 Teslas and like 25 Nextera energies and whoever the next nuclear company is going to be. And like, we need like a huge number of organizations doing something. And so this idea of allocating dollars at the margin, I don't think is particularly useful because there's one, a lot of pie to go around if we focus on creating and baking pie. And two, at the end of the day, there is actually not going to be a silver bullet. There, there's actually going to have to be a lot of solutions working in parallel or working in concert with one another. I completely agree with that last part. You, it's going to take everything everywhere all at once. What you hear about a lot of the in conflict with this idea of uh, actually enacting a lot of the things around climate change that we need to is this idea of perpetual growth. The capitalism is requires this making the pie bigger, this growing more every year. And so that means that those hundred people that are the most influential for actually making decisions have competing set of incentives, where on one hand, perhaps they do have this moralistic or 
enlightened, if you will, view of let's all come together and do things well and not die. And on the other hand, they need to grow their business. And so what do you think happens when you're forced with this idea of saying, we know what decision to make that can help us row in this way, but we're going to be flat for our revenue growth this quarter. Like, how do you align those incentives so that the planet is on par with that profit? So I think the the beautiful thing about renewable, regenerative, and sustainable systems is that in many cases, growth, although nothing is infinite, nothing is actually truly infinite, things can be incredibly abundant. And so I actually don't think we're going to have to make that true trade-off in the next two, three, four decades as it pertains to, as long as your company is actually like values aligned with some sort of sustainability metric or goal, actually. And so what I mean by that is in a world where you're developing photovoltaic cells and electricity scaling results in like life expectancy going up, infant mortality going down and GDP per capita going up and just like general wellness of humanity going up, the more power you have. If you're producing sustainable, renewable power, you can do that all day long. If you're an oil and gas company, you can't be burning oil or coal or fracking all day long. And that's actually where the masses come into play. Because the masses, the reason they're so important is because they guide the decisions of corporates and policymakers. And that's why that's so important. So you actually need the masses to guide the sentiment of which companies are going to succeed and fail. But you actually don't need all companies not to succeed or only to succeed to a certain level in order to achieve that sustainable future you're describing. So if we're going to take the masses as a, a sort of um, <clears throat> wisdom of the markets metaphor or what have you, you know, sure. uh, well, you are optimistic. I am optimistic, but I am also skeptical because I'm not sure that the power balance there, there's two things that you need for efficient markets. You need good information on both sides and you need some degree of uh, power balance, like something. And I'm not sure that either of those things exist to be able to rely on this, this idea, this um, idea of the markets being able to self-regulate so that we can start moving towards a more sustainable future. I think if it had, we'd see more of that, but every year we may, we burn more carbon, you know, like every year that goes up and it goes up slower, but it goes up. Yeah. I mean, I think though, at the end of the day, and this is something that I think attributes to the idea of why patch was well time is that we're actually entering a very special moment in time where basically the first two generations that are going to be materially affected by climate change in their lifetime, the millennials and Gen, Gen uh, Z, are actually beginning to like spend and vote in, in larger numbers than they have in the last decade or two decades before. Two decades before yeah. because they were all children. Um, and I actually think that is the macro and secular shift that is changing here. And so it is a there is a lag because basically the public sentiment has to shift and then basically corporates will follow that, investors will follow that, and then policymakers are the slowest, right? And so we will probably see policy passed in 2028 or 2032 that really reflects how 50, 60, 70% of people feel today. And that's just like the nature of democracy and our systems. I am, I, again, I'm by default uh, optimistic. Uh, but And at the end of the day, I actually don't really see, just now to make become pragmatic, I actually don't see another system or solution that can get spun up in the next 15 years that can solve this problem. And if we wanted to roll the guillotines out and like fundamentally change something, we should have done it two or three decades ago. But that actually, that ship has passed, in my opinion, in order to take climate action and the pace we need to take it today. 
So I like completely fundamentally agree with you on all of those points, which is the foundation of United by Zero, the company that I work at and started exactly sort yeah. of the same idea of saying, how can we empower people with the decisions that they make to help grease the wheels for the politics, the capitalist society, because we can't rebuild it fast enough. But man, it's going to be fucking hard. And you got to look in the face of the of the data that's coming out. They're saying like, there's still this massive say-do gap between what people will say they'll do and what people will do. And especially when it comes to sacrifice. And a lot of yep. the ways that we're asking like individuals to do the hard work of making these choices and making these decisions. And I think that's where some of the moral hazard world of this carbon offsets has, has come about, which is like, it's super easy, relatively speaking, for companies to say, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to throw money at it. And by throwing money at it, I'll get to my net zero goals that I can tell my PR team to spin up. And we're going to do the hard thing, which is actually validating that sort of down the way. That's not my problem as this, you know, as the corporate suite sitting in here and saying like, yeah, I can do that. And so that's where we're going back to the beginning. Like, does the ICC have teeth that can actually like enforce a cost structure? Does the FTC, will consumers get smart? Will companies like yours come to the table and say, we're only accepting 10% of the projects that are coming our way because those are the ones that we actually think are are going to move the needle for us not dying or be transparent about all the things we do. And so it's like, it's an incredible, it's a, it's an incredibly important moment for that to, to live up to those things that you say, you know, you're the CEO of a company that's valued doing the math at many hundred millions of dollars. So you're going to have to make those choices. And like in you, we, in you, we have faith, Brennan, that, that when those moments come to pass, you heed your own advice and row in that direction. I have, Absolutely will be. Appreciate I appreciate the vote of confidence, Lex. You got it, bud. All right. Listen, thank you so much for coming on board today. Really appreciate it. Appreciate your candor. And yeah, in all serious, it's going to take all of us, man. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Let's get back to work, Lex. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. That was Brennan Spellacy, the CEO of Patch Technologies. And you can learn more about them at patch.io. This episode was produced by Matt Simmons and myself, Lex, and our theme music is by James Rhodes. We have another great slate of episodes in store for you starting next year, so we will see you next time on another episode of Who's Saving the Planet.